Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Each year, thousands of young people are sent to congregate care settings to address behavioral concerns or to receive psychiatric support. Advertised as a solution for troubled teens, these facilities have become fraught with abuse and mistreatment. But the inattention to that mistreatment ended when Paris Hilton, who endured abuse at four such facilities, not only went public, but also lent her voice and her powerful following to raise awareness. This week, Hilton brought her message to Capitol Hill, and she has a powerful ally in California Congressman Ro Khanna. With advocate Caroline Cole, the three are shining a spotlight on the lack of oversight and pushing for congressional action. And the three join me now. Caroline Cole, Paris Hilton, Congressman Ro Khanna, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having us. Um, Paris, uh, let me start with you. You went public with your abuse at Provo Canyon School in your documentary, This is Paris, which I recommend uh, everyone watch if they really wanna get to know who you really are. Um, and, it, and it came out last fall. Using your experience, talk about what goes on in these congregate care facilities. Um, well, I attended four of these facilities. They were called emotional growth schools, but it was not that at all. I was physically, verbally, emotionally abused. My peers around me were being sexually abused. I was strangled. I was hit. Um, I was... I was cut off from the outside world. I couldn't tell my family because anytime I tried to say anything on the phone, they would hang up and I would get punished. It was the most traumatizing experience I've ever went through in my life. And to this day, I have severe PTSD because of it. I mean, you say in the documentary that you can't sleep. You have nightmares, or at least you did at the, the, during the filming of the, of the documentary. One thing you didn't mention, at least I didn't hear you mention in terms of the treatment you um, you received is that you were put in solitary confinement at points during your your stay in the facility. Why why did they put you in solitary? They would do that for any reason if someone didn't listen to them. For me, I didn't want to take the medication. They were forcing me to take meds. I was not diagnosed that I did not need medication, but that's what they do to all the children there, and I refused. And because of that, I got punished. And that's what they did to the kids there. It's a normal mm -hmm. practice that happens every single day there. And Caroline, you um, also went to or spent time in some of these facilities. How many children each year attend these kinds of quote unquote troubled teen facilities? And how similar is your experience to that of Paris? So with the data that we have, 
which I will say this is one of the issues is that we we really don't have a complete picture because currently there's not required reporting in many of these facilities. But with the data that we have, we can see that there's approximately 120,000 to 200,000 young people every single year who are being placed in these facilities. And we also know that their average length of stay is anywhere around 15 months to 18 months at a time. And during my... Uh, stay at a troubled teen facility. I actually went to a program called the Academy at Ivy Ridge in upstate New York. I was there for 29 months, two and a half years of my life from when I was 14 years old uh, until almost 17. And the things that I witnessed uh, as far as physical restraints, as far as staff antagonizing these young people, um, saying things like, nobody wants us. Uh, if they wanted you, you would be home. Um, and, and of course, staff on student relationships and an overall lack of educational or treatment standards altogether. Um, it, it, it was a nightmare to go through. And it's taken me all of the past 17 years to figure out how to live normally. I would say that's a fair statement to live normally again. You know, also, Caroline, one of the big problems you say is deceptive marketing that's been used to support these kinds of facilities. How does what does that look like? How does this deceptive marketing manifest itself? Excellent question. So as a parent, I have two children and as as a parent, if you're looking for assistance for your child, should they have uh, any mental health needs or just behavioral concerns um, immediately, you know, what do we do? We go on to Google, we go online, we start searching for resources. And so oftentimes when you go on to these websites of these facilities, it will show a beautiful campus with children sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya, their horseback writing um, and they use a lot of language like character development and leadership building and um, I mean even we see the usage of language like trauma informed uh, but that's not entirely reflective of their actual practices in fact many young people who attend these facilities will say we weren't even allowed to talk or look at each other nonetheless sing kumbaya around a campfire and so as as a parent and even as child placing agencies which we know many many uh public agencies such as child welfare juvenile justice are, are placing youth in these facilities um we don't have anything else to go off of except for what the facilities themselves are telling us mm -hmm. you know paris there's a there's a moment uh, in um, This is Paris, the, the, the documentary, where the, the off-screen questioner um, asks your mother, uh, and I can't remember the exact question, but it was sort of like, did you know Paris? And then she spelled out some of the, the um, things you went through. And the look of genuine shock on your mother's face is was really compelling because you sort of wonder like we hear you talking about your experiences and yet your mom had no idea what was it like for you to finally tell your mother reveal to your parents what happened to you in those four facilities that 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 they sent you to my parents had no idea they were de deceived just like the parents the children are really manipulated by these places the same thing with the parents my parents thought i was going to a normal boarding school where i was going to be taken care of and healed and 
Instead, so many terrible things happened that I didn't even want to think about it again because it was way too painful. So I kept this in for over 20 years. And when I finally told my mom, she didn't even know what to think. She was in such shock and so heartbroken and just couldn't believe it. And then now she's angry. She can't believe that these people lied to her, what they did to, to me, to so many other survivors. My mom has been in contact with a lot of them and also the parents because the parents are victims as well. And these places have been getting away with this for way too long. This has been going on for 60 years. You know, Paris um, and Congressman Khanna, I, I know you're here. I have not forgotten about you. I'm coming to you. But but Paris, I have to ask you this as gingerly as I can. In in the documentary, you talk about this these nightmares that you have. And one of the nightmares that you have is that these two strangers burst into your room and they kidnap you. It's only later that we find out that that's actually what happened to you. That's how you were taken to that first, I don't know if it was Provo Canyon School, but certainly to that first facility. Um, even in that moment, have you and your, your parents talked about that moment? Because that one moment in and of itself is traumatizing, taking you, or as one person in the documentary said, she called it being kidnapped to the facility. That's how it is in this industry. That's, it's, this is a very profitable industry and that's part of the package that they give to most families where children are taken in the middle of the night and kidnapped. And I I've still have traumatic memories and, and, and nightmares about it. And it, it, sorry, I'm just getting nervous talking about this. Um, my parents are horrified that it had to happen that way. And they've talked to me about it so many times and they regret ever sending me there because it was just horrible what happened and the fact that it's still affecting me to this day and, and will, will probably affect me for the rest of my life. That's why I'm here because I want to make a difference because I, I don't want any more children to suffer the way myself and millions of other children have. So Congressman Khanna, um, you didn't know about these abuses, abuses happening in congregate care facilities until you talked to Paris Hilton. So first question is, who reached out to whom? Did Paris Hilton reach out to you or did you hear about it and you reached out to Paris Hilton? Congressman, you're muted. Neither, uh, Jonathan. Okay. As, as, you, as uh, Actually, I was scheduled to meet Carter, Paris Hilton's fiance at the time. I didn't even know that Carter was engaged to Paris Hilton. And as you know, I represent Silicon Valley and Carter right. is a dynamic uh, entrepreneur. And so I thought I was gonna meet him over coffee. We we're gonna talk about tech and tech policy. And halfway through the conversation, he says, you know, Paris Hilton has uh, this issue he wants to bring up. And my initial reaction was a little bit of skepticism because you get a celebrity, what is the issue? And then he starts going into the, the details of what happened to Paris. And he said, just why don't you meet with her? And I said, sure, I'm happy to meet with her. What struck me are two things that Paris said. One, she said, if this could happen to my family, bro, think about what chance do families have of communities of color, of communities which are in the working class, of parents who have sexually or gender diverse kids. I mean, if this can happen to Paris Hilton, what real hope is there for the hundreds of thousands of kids that this is happening to? 
And the second thing she said to me is, uh, of all the things she's done in her life, by far what she's most committed to doing is to seeing this changed and, and to having uh, a, a real Bill of Rights for kids. And so I could tell how committed she was, how sincere she was about it, how effective she was. And then I started researching the issue uh, and uh, we worked with Breaking Code Silence to, to try to get this legislation introduced. And Congressman, when you started looking into, into this issue, how shocked were you by, by what you found? And how shocked were you that these facilities where all this stuff was happening were largely un, or are largely unregulated? I was shocked at the scale of it. You know, Jonathan, one of the things that's happened, especially since Paris has become more public, is I've had at least a dozen people who I know text me, email me saying, I'm so glad you and Paris and others are doing this. Here is my experience. Uh, th this happened to my daughter, my son. This happened to me. Uh, and I, I just was oblivious. I had no idea that this was taking place in the scale. Now I'm convinced uh, that this is a really a widespread spread problem. Uh, and these kids are going, their families are sending their kids to these institutions. They're making tons of money. They're for-profit institutions. And they're really scarring these kids. I mean, the worst is the sexual assault or physical abuse. But short of that, when you hear stories of kids who are not allowed to speak, who are basically uh, treated as criminals in the way that they are uh, looked after. And uh, it's, it's appalling that this is going on in our country. You've mentioned a couple of times now a, a Bill of Rights. What, what would be, what's part of the, the Bill of Rights that you imagine for the, the legislation you plan to introduce? Now that it's uh, actually so simple, it's amazing that we don't already have this. I mean, basically, we're saying that these kids should not be uh, put in solitary confinement, that they should not be physically uh, hit or restrained, that they should have some standards of looking after both their physical and mental well-being, that there ought to be basic standards of uh, nutrition, that they should be allowed to move I mean, and, and have the freedom to, to move and freedom to express themselves, some sense of being able to call uh, back home. So uh, just basic things that you would expect are the norms in these facilities, but are not the norms. Mm -hmm. You know, Caroline, how, how important is it? Because I think both you and the Congressman have mentioned uh, how much money is made uh, in this industry. How important is regulation for and accountability of these facilities in the legislation Congressman Khanna plans to introduce? Well, right now what we're seeing in the industry is that there's upwards of $50 billion a year that we just here in America are, are funneling into these facilities to place youth in conditions where they're receiving substandard care at best and, and abuse, you know, in, in the worst situations or even death. And so when we look at the actual daily rates of some of these facilities, um, on average, we're seeing that it's anywhere from about $588 per day to $800 per day, and, and which comes to an average of, of around uh, $16,000 to $17,000 per month. And so this is an incredibly lucrative industry. But I beg the question, can we imagine a world where 
we put that $16,000 per month back into the community, back into services that we know will actually be beneficial for these young people. Caroline, talk about breaking code silence. How'd it get started? I would love to talk about breaking code silence. So we are a survivor-led nonprofit organization. We have over 200 volunteers. Um, we are all volunteers and we all have lived experience in this industry. And so over the course of many years, and I will say that there are advocates who have come before us who have been blowing the whistle on this issue for decades, um, we, share a space together online. And we really just started by lamenting about our experiences and, and wanting to connect with other people who had been through what we had been through um, and, and trying to figure out, you know, um, what are some of the challenges that we've been through since? And so in that shared space, over time, it became very apparent that we have got to act because many of us have children now and we're seeing this affect their generation and our communities. And so we are now um, adults and in positions of power and leadership where we can affect change. Um, please, please follow our organization. You can check us out at breakingcodesilence.org. We are also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we would love to connect um, and, and we're always looking to build allyship and, and support in any way possible. And, and Paris, if I'm, how did you find out about breaking code silence? Was it through um, your, um, I'm trying to think of the, the right word, the, the other women who were at um, Provo Canyon School with you? Is that how you found out about it? Yes, uh, during the documentary, I reconnected with some of the survivors that went to Provo Canyon School with me. And Catherine came over when all the girls came and said, we're gonna do this campaign called Breaking Code Silence, where we all put red tape and basically say everything that they did to us. So this was before, and then when the film came out, thousands of survivors were reaching out to me, and it's just been the most empowering and inspiring and healing year of my life, meeting all brave and resilient because we're very lucky. A lot of people don't make it. Most people who leave these places, they end up committing suicide, getting into drugs, ending up in jail, so I, I just, I'm very grateful to this community and how strong we are and how we're all using our voices and no longer being silent. I don't know if anyone could notice in the opening montage, sort of opening up this interview, there were stills of protests. And in one of those stills is a picture, there were words over it, so you couldn't probably tell, but that was you, Paris, holding up a sign. I think it was saying, you know, close down Provo Canyon School. What has it been like for you to not just use your name and use your social media following to bring light to this issue, but to physically be a part of the protest, to be a part of getting the message out? It was one of the most empowering moments of my life just to be outside of the school that put myself and so many others through so much pain and suffering. And then to go back to Utah and testify and then go back again and pass the bill. And I just saw that how powerful it is to use my platform and voice for good. And I do believe that maybe God made me go through this so that I can one day be the one to help put a stop to it. And it's, I'm just so proud of everything and what we're doing here has been so positive. And thank you so much, Congressman Rokana. You are incredible and we really, really appreciate you.
You know, Congressman, um, in the legislation that you plan to introduce, is one of the goals to close down these facilities? Some of them that don't uh, follow the regulations need to be closed. Uh, I think there is uh, an acknowledgement that you need some facilities to help students uh, or young people if they are proper and if they hit regulations. So the idea is not to shut down the entire industry, but to make sure that it's upholding basic rights. Uh, let me just say, I mean, Paris was kind to, to thank me or, or, and my other colleagues, but the real uh, heroes of this story are Caroline pa Paris, you know, there's a 12-year-old, Uvea, who came and spoke at a press conference out with all these members of Congress and others telling her story. I mean, it's just been incredible to see uh, the survivors tell their stories. And it's moved Congress. And I think these congregate care facilities should know uh, that we are going to act. And it would behoove them right now to clean up their act, because what they don't want is uh, to be hauled in front of Congress with subpoenas and testimony and have investigations. And so uh, voluntary compliance and getting their act together is probably smart for them. And you know, the 12-year-old you're talking about, uh, if I remember right, she's been in these facilities or had been for six years. So you do the math and just think about how traumatized and traumatizing the experience has been for her. I want to go to, to an audience question, and, and I'm going to direct this to you, Caroline, but if Cong Congressman Khanna or Paris, you want, to, you want to chime in as well, please do. But the question is, what can be done to prevent school districts from using special education funds through individual education plans to send children to these facilities, especially out-of-state facilities with a lack of oversight? This is from Sasha Oates in California. This is an incredibly important question. So when it comes to IEP plans, there is a historical precedent of many parents actually bringing lawsuits against school districts for not paying for these young people's placements uh, into these facilities dating back to uh, the 1970s, I believe. And so there's a very long history there of, of schools almost having their hands tied uh, when it comes to placing out of state or out of district into residential facilities. And so I think what we need to do is um, establish a new precedent and we can look to states such as Oregon who now require um, any out-of-state placements under those conditions to have more stringent laws or laws that are equal to um, the oversight and protections that are in place in Oregon. And Jonathan, one of the things yeah, that go ahead, question gets at is, which I didn't realize till we looked into it, is there are a lot of tax dollars that are going into this. I mean, in Alaska, $31 million of Medicaid money was used to send 511 students uh, to Utah and Nevada, again, over $30 million of Medicaid money used to send over 700 students uh, to these facilities. So it's our tax dollars that are being used to send uh, young people into these facilities with very little oversight. Congressman, how much pushback have you gotten um, since you started looking into this and started talking about introducing legislation to hold these facilities accountable? Jonathan, unfortunately, as Washington works, there hasn't been much pushback. I mean, no one is going to stand there and criticize uh, Caroline and Paris Shelton and the survivors. So everyone is, yes, 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 let's do things. But that's not how this place works. You know, the lobbyists come out and they 
uh, try to hold something up in committee. They try to hold uh, something from getting a vote on the floor in the Senate. So rhetorically, there's been a lot of support. The challenge is going to be how do we convert that into legislation and oversight hearings, and uh, I'm certainly committed to doing that. In the time that we have have left, I want to you know spend the time talking to Caroline and, and Paris, and just to ask you, I mean, you shared so you both have shared so much of, of your personal experiences, your traumatizing experiences. How are you doing today, and and what what has helped you cope? with some of the trauma you've experienced. Caroline, you go first. So I feel that one of the most important aspects of healing is being able to participate in your own self-advocacy. And a couple of years ago, I had uh, really a coming to terms with the repercussions that that placement had in my life, in my mental health, in how I function. Um, I do have complex PTSD from my experiences at the Academy at Ivy Ridge. And so being able to be a part of that tangible change and to help lift up other voices who have lived experiences as well. Um, and not only that, but to um, be able to contact other advocacy organizations, such as Think of Us, who has done such an incredible job in the child welfare space around this issue. Um, that in and of itself is part of the healing. And I just could not be more grateful to people who have opened their arms to us and allowed us to be a part of that process as well. And Paris, how are you today? Because in watching the in watching the documentary, um, one of the things you consistent, consistently complained about is your inability to sleep. Since, since telling your truth, since talking to your parents, since putting all of this out there, uh, ha have you been able to sleep? Have you been able to heal a a as much as you can from the experiences that you've endured? This has been the most healing experience in my life, finally just speaking about it and letting it go and also making a change and a difference and just being the hero that I needed when I was a little girl, scared and terrified in those places. So I just know that the little girl in me would be so proud of the woman I am today and the fact that just being here and everything that's happening and being with this community of amazing people and um, finding people that can understand me because unless you've been through it, it's it's very hard to understand because um, it's just very, I don't know. It's hard to talk about sometimes, but it's important that we all do because people need to be held accountable for their actions and this just needs to stop. And for, for someone who, a young person who might be watching um, for a survivor who might not have taken the next step of coming forward in that, you know, going to breaking code silence or telling loved ones about what they went through, what, what kind of encouragement could you give them to work up the strength that's needed to talk about their truth, what happened to them? I really believe that the truth shall set you free and people will believe you and you're not alone. So I think it's so important to talk to others and let people know and tell your story. And we'd love to hear your stories on breakingcodesilence.org. We have so many survivors coming and telling stories and 
the more awareness we raise, we raise about this, the more change that we can all make together. And Caroline, what I mean, I'm sure you have been you you have been talking. You both have been talking to survivors, but Caroline, you you've been uh, on the ground talking to folks. What kinds of uh, encouragement have you given that you've seen has has worked to bring survivors along to get them to be able to, as Paris just said, tell the truth so that it will set them free? Absolutely. So. With the survivors that I've talked to, I first just want to emphasize that trauma has incredibly real physical and mental ramifications. And so I always encourage survivors to go slowly, to go at your own pace. I think sometimes when we want to face our traumas, we want to dive in headfirst because we feel so validated in our experiences um, to be a part of a community who understands that sometimes that in and of itself can be very overwhelming. So I always say, make sure that you're in touch with a psychologist, with a counselor, someone who can help you unpack uh, and start to understand some of these areas of trauma, especially um, if, if you do have PTSD um, or, or other repercussions. Um, but what I have seen as a whole is that that community in speaking with people who know, who understand, who have been through it is beyond, um, I mean, it's just invaluable, invaluable to have our community. This has been an, a, a surprising and incredible conversation. I cannot thank you all enough for being here. Paris Hilton, Congressman Ro Khanna, Caroline Cole, um, obviously we are out of time. Thank you very, very much for sharing your stories and for bringing attention to the troubled teen industry. And thank you all very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.